Welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. And to ring in the new year, I have two co-hosts, as always. I'm Hoi Chen Bu, a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in New York. And I am Anya Crittenton, a writer and editor in Los Angeles. All right, guys, it is 2020 officially. It is a new year. It is a new decade. And as you might have seen, a lot of people uh, on the internet, in real life, on the news, are doing kind of a a retrospective of the last decade and the biggest moments in it. Um, And that is what we're going to be doing this week. When my co-host suggested this to me, I was extremely intimidated because I don't even know how to begin assessing a decade. Um, But they they put me up to the challenge, and I I think I, I, I succeeded. We'll find out as this episode goes on. Um, But we're going to do a bit of a round-robin style like we normally do with these kind of episodes. We're going to be talking about movies and television uh, in their own categories. And then we're going to finish off the episode with just some other general pop culture things that, like, we all personally love from the decade, whether it be music or video games, theater, books, what have you. Um, Because we all only have, I think, movies and television as a crossover between all three of us and then our other interests sort of veer into our own personal Right. So because I, I don't really go to the theater and I don't really read books, but also you guys aren't, you guys don't play as many video games as I do. So it sort of, it balances out. It does balance out. <laughs> I do have a question for you guys that maybe, maybe we should have clarified before, but I want to ask uh, what you think about TV shows that for us defined this decade, but came out in like 2009. So Community yeah, and Parks and Rec, for example. Oh yeah. I mean, Parks uh, and Rec is like the best show of the decade for me. So like... Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I think that television, you know, as long as it like didn't like if it ended in like 2010, 2011, I don't think it really counts. Mm. But if it like if most of its seasons came out during the 2010s, I think it counts as like a show from the last decade. Oh, see, then I'm then I'm conflicted on Mad Men because Mad Men came out and started in 2007 and the first four like seasons came out like early then and then it took a like a over a year break and then it came back and and then spent the first half of 2010s like doing its thing so like when did it end 2015 i think it's still because it's still covered half of the decade you know what this is our show and we can count it if we want to we can we we make the rules we make the rules um so we're just gonna dive in because it's gonna be you know an expansive episode and we don't want to uh, just be sitting here for two hours just, like, listing titles, because that's not very engaging. Um, Unless you're into that, write into the millennialfalcon at gmail.com and let us know. Um, in which case, Anya will immediately shoot it down. So, <laughs> you know, if you want to be rejected, that's fine. Um, <laughs> well, since we brought up television, why don't we just start with television? And Willoughby, you brought up Mad Men, which I'm sure is going to be on your list of defining of decade-defining shows. So, Willie, why don't you tell us a little bit about television from this past decade that has really influenced you or made an impact on you? Sure. Um, my list now has to change because I didn't realize we were, we could do shows that started before 2010. Um, okay, so, I mean, I can... Yeah, okay. Oh, we don't... We, it's not like we have a list of... Make up your own rules, uh, Willoughby. Right. I'm okay. I'm, I'm Rule one, there's no rules. It's Little Caesars. Um, so I have here, like, yeah, okay, I'll start with, start off with Mad Men. I feel like Mad Men really started defining what, like, the quote-unquote prestige television show 
like trend even before Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad was like a year later. Um, but Mad Men really set the tone for like like these these TV shows are going to be filmed like movies now. Um and The Sopranos kind of did that before. Um and but Mad Men did it in such a way that was compelling to have you know, it was set in the 60s. It was about cultural change and a man at the at the center of it who was not changing. Um and but also had like emotional turmoil in his past and like you know like he he was sort of don draper sort of the iconic anti-hero of the of this uh golden age of television i'd say even more so than walter white because walter white ultimately became the villain don draper never became the villain of the story there were moments where he was the villain and peggy was the is the protagonist um but don's story was always sort of the 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 propulsive engine of the show um but it also has like a ton of amazing side characters and i feel like everyone has their favorite madman characters who aren't don draper peggy olsen is definitely one of mine stan and stan rizzo is another one um i know friends who are big fans of pete campbell even though he's a slimy <laughs> bastard who, wait who uh, is a fan of pete campbell i don't know them not- Okay, fans should be, fans should be uh, not the right term, just sort of like appreciative of his of the fact that there's a character like Pete Campbell on the show who is trash, who is sort of the worst, but also like you can't help but sort of appreciate having a character like that who's sort of a foil to Dawn in some ways, um, and and yeah, so I feel like Mad Men and the stories that they tell like it's not super plot driven, but the just like the whole like aesthetic of the 60s and the countercultural movement that's like sort of brushing up against the advertising agency um, is sort of fun. And and yeah, I just, I feel like Mad Men's great. I'm going long, so I'm just going to continue with Brooklyn Nine-Nine is another one that I feel like really defines the decade and as well as Parks and Rec. Um, Parks and Rec's definitely on this list now that we are including shows from 2009. Um uh, but yeah, I feel like just sort of the Mike Sure of it all, good, the good places on my list too. Uh, he sort of definitely defined the comedy of the 2010s, I'd say. In, yeah, you know, I think we could put Mike Sure in his own category, be like Mike yeah. Sure TV, Brooklyn Nine Nine, Parks and Rec, several, The Good Place. Yeah, like we've done several he episodes his own on category Schur. on my list. So mm-hmm. yeah, like uh, Mike Sure is definitely like up there as like. He, he definitely defines like the punching up of uh, of the comedy whereas like i'd say family guy and south park defined the 2000s so i'd say brooklyn 99 and parks and rec in the good place to find the 2010s of comedy um but then you've also got like depressive comedy like bojack horseman and you know uh I'm trying to think of other shows that are like they take the medium and do it do something different with it but i'm blanking on others i just know bojack is like sort of like the the ultimate version of that um, I've also got um, the leftovers and the Amer- the Americans, which sort of are the dramas of the decade, uh, uh, where they are telling us a story. They're telling stories of people in turmoil, um, and turmoil either being spycraft or a, ten- uh, a third of the pop or a three percent of the populations, you know, vanished. Like, what do you do? Um, it gave us. I gave us Matthew Reese because I don't think he was like doing anything before. I feel like the Americans is like I mean, his big. He was, I mean, he was in Brothers and Sisters, which was pretty popular at the time, and he was a main character. And oh, so I, 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 I would say that Matthew Reese. Yeah, I would say. I mean, Matthew Reese. I think Americans put him on the 
map in like a big prestige way but he had definitely like been doing his his due before the americans he's doing now he's he's been in both both the post and the report as uh you know part of this like trilogy of espionage and leaking things with the if the if you it was just a shame he wasn't in spotlight because then it could have been like the holy if he was in spotlight it would have been like the hat trick of the decade of him (laughs) being like in like journalism movies like these like uncovered uh government bad thing happened clearly he just needs to he needs to find another movie project soon where he played like a journalist like seeking the truth and then we can say like it's the matthew reese like journalism trilogy i mean he he is a journalism uh, a wonderful day I mean, in the true, neighborhood. Beautiful day beautiful as day a journalist. That's yeah. true. Oh, but he's not really exposing anything. No, he's. It's, it's like the well, next step for his journalist, where he's trying to expose something, but really he's just learning that people are good. He's exposed. Like, he's exposing his own wounds. Yes, he um, is. He is. So maybe that's the trilogy. Yeah, maybe that's the trilogy all along. The evolution. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, so like the the I feel like TV of the decade is is. You know, we've had a lot of strong contenders. I I'm hesitant to put Game of Thrones on my list because it just put a sour taste in my mouth. Um, Don't do it. But I, I will. Do, say, I should but say. I, but okay. I was just gonna. But as I feel like, like looking at the decade as a whole, like away from my own perspective, I feel like Game of Thrones is a decade-defining show because it did sort of unleash the the fantasy, gritty fantasy. Uh, you know, trope uh, or genre on us all. Like The Walking Dead is up there as sort of like these weird television. Like, I mean, they I guess they were must see TV for a while, and then they sort of both fell off and by doing doing the characters dirty. Um, I do want to give. Breaking I feel like we should do a, a shout out to uh, Game of Thrones because it is kind of the show that brought us together. Um, ironically. That's, yeah. That is very true. So it does hold like it's a place in this decade and I think it, it does like make its mark and deserve the standing that it has, despite like all the failings that it has too, because it is such a de- decade defining show. But uh it's not without criticism, of course, and without like our own personal journeys with this series. So I guess shout out to Game of Thrones for bringing us together and also keeping us together against it. <laughs> Right. It's sort of we we've gone on our own journey here. Mm. I feel like we started the podcast in September of 2015, which was right after season five of Game of Thrones. So we were like done talking about we were done being cool with the show at that point. So like listeners of the podcast, you've never heard us actually be positive about Game of Thrones, I guess. Like soup like 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 in a way that in a way of like where we cr- still criticize the show but are generally favorable for it because I feel like when we met season three was starting um and so like that was sort of a golden age of watching game of thrones and being cool with it even though there were choices that were made that were bad um whereas season five and forward was sort of like the the end point for us even though we've done several episodes about game of thrones even though we don't watch it anymore um yeah i feel like i feel like these are the television and veep is a def- definitely a show on here that sort of is is the political show besides the americans um where it really defined sort of you know what what uh hbo comedy is in this decade because i feel like silicon valley took is also up there um and i guess i've never i, I haven't watched barry yet so i don't know mm. even though i know it's, it gets dark but veep always was sort of still played it for laughs um 
And then it became real in 2016. And we were like, oh, no. And then Veep was like, yeah, we're good. Bye. Um, but, yeah, uh, though that's my television. Um, uh, Anya, what are your television picks of the decade? What defined your 2010s? Yeah, because I want to hop off some of the things you said. Um, so I think I, I sort of categorized my decade in television into a few different categories that I think define television for me. Um, and so the first one would be, like, comedy but specifically very specific people um, that define the comedy genre for me over this decade. And the first would be Mike Schur, as we said, Parks and Rec is my favorite show of all time. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, they have all, you know, highly succeeded and we all love them very much. Um, the other one for me, though, would be John Mulaney. Um, all three of his specials, all three of his like main specials came out in the 2010s, all of which are perfect. Um not only that, though, but he worked on Documentary Now, which I think is one of the smartest, funniest television shows that has ever graced the small screen. Um, underrated by far, but by far one of the most genius things I've ever watched on TV. Um, and he was a big part of that show. And so, you know, John Mulaney really uh, influenced my sense of comedy over the decade. And he he's still continuing. And... God love him. I have a picture of a little child John. I have a sticker of child John Mulaney on my water bottle that says I'm going to be a Democrat <laughs> from his special. I, I would like to see that picture or it's, that sticker. I, 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 I will send you guys a photo. Yeah. Um, it's delightful and adorable. I'm going to be a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> I quote that one all the time. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so for me, John Mulaney and Mike Sure were my comedy uh, influences over the decade. Uh, the next one would be uh, Prestige TV, which I didn't really start getting into until recently. I never watched Mad Men. I never watched Breaking Bad. Um, my earliest one during that time period was Boardwalk Empire, um, which I had hesitated putting on here because it did have some like slow moments. But looking back on it, I really loved Boardwalk Empire and the entire arc that it uh, had as a television show. And for me, that was my first really foray into Prestige TV. Um, and it's still my favorite of those kind of early bunches. Um, but now, going more forward, you know, I've mostly been into later prestige television shows. So The Americans, um, Fleabag, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Jane the Virgin, and uh, more recently Succession, which perhaps will end up becoming more of a 2020s defining show, but has definitely defined the last years of the 2010s for me so I, i'm still gonna you know give it a shout out because it's still very very specifically the last six months have been very oh it's a kendall roy heavy i was gonna say i was gonna say like 20 the 2010s ended with kendall roy for me just like he he defined <laughs> defined my 2019 um so you know shout out to kendall roy that sad boy i love i love my, me some sad boys um and then my last category, um, well, okay, hold on. My second to last category. Okay. I'm okay. I'm getting ahead of myself. The next category for me would be uh, queer representation in television that I really loved and really appreciated. Um, and that, you know, goes back to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Um, but for me, a lot of shows that define that for me were Gentleman Jack, uh, Pose on FX, which again is continuing. And so is Gentleman Jack, but, you know, really ended the 2010s with some of the most positive queer representation I have ever seen and am excited to keep seeing in the future. Um, also, Legend of Korra, 
and Steven Universe uh, animated shows, which I think have done wonders for queer representation um, for all age ranges. Also, the bold type, I think, has been really exciting in terms of representation. Um, so I've been really excited about queer representation on television, um, especially in the latter half of this decade. Um, and I'm excited to see where that goes in the future. And then finally, I just need to give a shout out to kind of my my staple shows that, you know, have not always been at their finest, um, but have meant a lot to me. So, you know, I, I would be remiss not to mention Once Upon a Time in this decade. It, it was a bad show during part of its run, like actively bad, but like it would be a lie to say that it didn't really have an effect on me and that the character of Emma Swan didn't mean a lot to me. Um, and the same goes for Elementary, which I think is still the best modern adaptation of Sherlock Holmes we have ever seen. Um, and also Gallivant. You know, I, I, I can't not mention Gallivant because that show just, you know, has a really special place in my heart. Um, it's a great show, too. It's, it's like, a great show. It's, it's so good. underrated. Yes. It is. It's also, so good. Also, shout out. Shout out to Once Upon a Time for also bringing you guys together as well as Game of oh, Thrones. Yeah, like, that's true. yeah, Once Upon a Time was definitely like, in their in their our Hollywood in the seventies class. Those were the two shows that you guys were like checking in checking in on each other with. Yeah, all that the was time. Still kind of like, that was fun. So you know, I, I do love that show as bananas and bad <laughs> as it could be, but you know, it, it I still do hold it very fondly in my heart. Yeah, it had its highs, especially like in that first season. I really the, loved the it. highs were definitely like highs. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was literally listening to the um, uh, soundtrack for the musical episode that they did, and that episode had no right being as good as it was. Like those songs are so catchy and so fun, and they're all great performers. So like, I'm angry that that episode was so good, but so happy because it was a delightful little treat um, i never saw yeah, that episode so, actually oh it's, it's actually it's so good like it's a Wasn't great that, episode that was like right around the time that like a lot of the shows that like the flash had done a musical episode like what, like right around the same time yeah. i think so yeah I think everyone so. was yeah, trying to do like, a musical episode buffy did it probably, yeah, and, and i mean best. that was, that was the Once Upon a Time one is actually it's really good i highly recommend like just yeah. watching that as a standalone episode because it's really fun all right, yeah, cool. I should check it out at some point. <laughs> so, HT, uh-huh. what about you? I think we've mentioned some shows that you definitely love from the oh, decade. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, it's kind of funny. When I was looking back at this past decade, I realized how much of it was spent sort of forming my own pop culture um, tastes and likes and identity. I think a lot of it was because this past decade uh, from 2010 to 2019 was spent in college and I was just really just kind of trying to shape what I was, what I liked. And so a lot of this, uh, what I liked in TV, I feel like uh, like was defined, I feel like there's a clear delineation between sort of college and post-college. And um, I have a lot of really fun memories of TV shows that I would watch in college with both of you guys and with everyone else that may not be as good, like, considered good but just um shows that have a really good close place in my heart those are shows like adventure time which actually is a great show and oh, um, so, okay. i did fall off watching it after a while but adventure time was such a phenomenal eye-opening show for me in terms of just like animated children's shows and what it could do and like the emotions that they could bring and just like the amazing imagination that it had in terms of like having this really basic story of uh a thin the human and um uh, Jake the dog. Yes, Jake the dog going on adventures to save the kingdom of Ooh, which turned out to be uh, the 
aftermath of a post-apocalyptic world. So it was just really interesting to me how they dealt with some really mature themes and did it in like this really light and um, uh, lighthearted and sort of light-footed way. So Adventure Time, I think, is just like a really close show to me and one that definitely defined a decade. Um, this and one you were it, BMO for Halloween one year. I was BMO for Halloween because so many people compared me to BMO, which was the character in the show that was a video game, a sentient video game console. And uh, she was a, she spoke with a Korean accent. And um, she basically was very blasé about and nonchalant about everything. She would just like wander around on her own and be like, oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening to your story. And people would often point at that line specifically because I would just not listen to people <laughs> and be like, oh, yeah, I wasn't listening, sorry. <laughs> so I, I dressed up as her for Halloween one time. So yes, um, um, Adventure Time. Another show that was definitely college-defining was uh, Community, a show that started in 2009 and went on for six seasons, but no movie. And that was a show that Willoughby and I definitely bonded over. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it shaped a lot of my taste in comedy as well. And uh, I used to love like, Dan Harmon and everything and uh, how what he did with this show and how it was just a, a series that also – a comedy that also punched up. Um, it kind of became, like, messy towards the end. Um, but it was such a fun – uh, show about this dysfunctional group of friends who um, that in the way that like in a series that sort of lampooned and also paid loving homage to every genre and nerd thing possible and it was definitely a show made for nerds by nerds and sometimes it got a little too much into its nerdery but when it was at its highs it was just some of the best tv out there so community just so fantastic and so funny and so smart and sometimes I like will go back on YouTube and watch some clips and the comedy is just still so sharp and funny and fast and I'm like man we really this kind of, the show kind of fell off of the public consciousness after it got canceled because it kind of died um, a little bit uh, not as uh, uh, in the prestigious way as it could uh, on Yahoo screen or something but it really was yep. so Yahoo great screen yeah when it was uh, on. Uh, shout out to, of course, that paintball episode, which changed everything for that show and for oh, yeah. pop culture, I think. And the second, the second pop uh, paintball episodes were uh, were uh, directed by the Russo brothers, mm-hmm. and and they I mean, they directed a bunch of episodes of Community, and like that, they gave Community and Arrested Development really gave us the Russo brothers. It did actually, uh, and and so we can thank Community for cap. We could thank Community for Captain America, The Winter Soldier, as well as Infinity War and Endgame. Yeah, really. Um, and Civil War, it's I guess. A, it's a real uh, foundational, like, a stepping stone for a lot of pop culture later on, which is it's kind of funny. Like, people yeah. kind of forget, but Community, really, they did it first. <laughs> season three of Community is still my favorite season. I feel like that was when they were at their peak. Yeah. Because they were just doing, like, all the genre-specific episodes and homages and like kicking it into high gear with all that like the the apocalypse now documentary episode was is just it's an all-timer for me as well as the dreamatorium episode like i feel like they really nailed the tone of what community and then that also that season also gave us the um uh the multiverse episode the the darkest darkest timeline timeline episode which people still joke about now yeah, that's like the tone, like the that term really became sort of a decade-defining term. It really did. And um, I wonder if people will like remember where it came from because no one yeah, really talks about community much anymore. 
I mean, that sort of darkest timeline thing definitely came from Star Trek and all that. Mm -hmm. But like, just the specific, the specific, specificness of it all. Um, Like, people still use the gif of Donald Glover running into uh, the burning apartment as a gif of like when Trump tweets something bullshit. Yeah. You come back six hours later to see we're at war with Iran. Um, So I think, yeah, it's just sort of yeah. I I agree. Uh, Community is one of the decade. I. I, 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 like you said, like it sort of fell off. Like I always forget community was so big. And then last year we did a rewatch of it. I'm like, yeah, it's a amazing show. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, and also everything Mike sure that we talked about before, I don't need to repeat it. His comedy, his optimistic comedy is just so good. And so, um, defining of this decade for me, parks and rec, especially I really love and will always revisit that show. And uh, I love the high conceptness of the good place and how it reminds me of Lost, which does not come from this decade, but is all as just, just decade defi- defying for me, decade transcending. I mean, that final season that was two twenty ten. That counts. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> all right, so this one, this last one for the the college era is a bit of a cheat. Uh, because it did not start in college, and it's a very old show, but it's a show that very much defined college for me, and it is Doctor it's Who. Your, it's your, yeah, there it is. Um, and you can kind of take it with this decade, because 2011 was when we saw the soft reboot with the Stephen Moffat era, and how and the show when it became sort of it started to reach international heights really before because even like with this 2005 reboot it was still a very domestically successful series and then it hit Netflix I think around like 2010 and um, in 2011 when it debuted with season six or season five uh, it started to really get big in terms of like of the American audience so I'm gonna say that's my decade for, for I, Doctor I Who. was gonna I was gonna talk about how Doctor Who definitely defined co- like our college experience mm-hmm. because it definitely like yeah it hit Netflix and people were watching it and I we began watching it and you know they went back and watched the David Tennant stuff and then you know the Matt Smith stuff was concurrent for like the first half of the decade like I think yeah Doctor Who I mean it became an international success I'd say mm-hmm. in this decade um, I don't think a lot of people were talking about Doctor Who very much in America in the I mean, maybe like real niche nerd circles who like n- like had access to British serials and BBC America and whatnot. But I feel like by by the time Matt Smith was the Doctor, I feel like because they were doing simulcasts of Doctor Who, where before it was like they would air it at 7 p.m. local time and then they would air it. Uh, you know, th- you know, it's it's now become such a thing that like we're watching it the same day that the UK is watching it. Mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. I feel like that's something you can you could point towards. Um, yeah, in this decade, yeah, it, I, and Doctor Who definitely went on to another international level of success, like global level. Right, like you can watch the premiere of the season of series twelve of today. Actually, was today the fifth? Yeah, I saw a thing yesterday when I saw the Rise of Skywalker. Second thing, I saw a Fathom event preview for watching the Doctor Who premiere in a theater Mm -hmm. and you get a sneak peek at the episode two that airs tonight. Like that that didn't happen 10 years ago. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's a, that's my, my sneak, my cheat in, but it's definitely, we argued for it, Willoughby. And this is our show. And um, I guess like the, this is a sort of separate category that doesn't uh, adhere to the post-college experience, but I guess like the prestige TV that I watched and loved 
Breaking Bad for one, which came out in 2008. But uh, I would say 2008, yeah, it came. But it was definitely yeah. part of this decade for me. Um, Hannibal, uh, Fleabag, uh, and then I will let's go into the post college experience and I feel like a lot of that is defined by the streaming era um, and how Netflix really dominated that Um, and those were shows like American Vandal which I adore but also shows that uh, were not on streaming I I actually didn't watch a lot of Netflix streaming shows or love them as much like I remember getting in trying to get into Orange is the New Black I was into House of Cards for a little bit but those shows were really up and down for me and never really decade-defining. And surprisingly, when I was looking back at it, a lot of the shows that were decade-defining for me were still on you know, network television. So you have Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, a show that I've talked about plenty of times and love how it deconstructs the rom-com and deconstructs musical. And it's just a brilliant feminist, savage piece of comedy. Um, New Girl. A fantastic, hilarious show that gave us the gift of Jake Johnson. <laughs> And um, it was also like decade defining for me in terms of just like the decades optimism, at least in the Obama era. It felt very much like an Obama era type of show. And after that, it kind of it doesn't there wasn't so much of it. But this decade really felt like Obama's decade in a lot of ways until, you know, we hit 2016. But let's just say that's like the Obama era, Obama era part of the decade. Uh, What else? Um, Those uh, and then like, you know other prestige shows Atlanta Barry also great um and I also want to give a shout out to my return to anime (laughs) um I guess we can also um attribute that to streaming because uh and also my job as I I started to uh let loose my preconceptions about anime and um and try not to be so cool uh I returned to anime big time this year with uh, a return of Fruits Basket the reboot a show that is dear to my heart and I will say it's part of the best of the decade because of such a strong first season um and how it so closely adapts this uh shoujo series that I dearly love and then from the beginning of the decade uh we had Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood a great, another sort of remake of the series that I didn't love as much as the original Full Metal Alchemist, but I I really deeply love and it brought me great memories and uh, absolutely adored that. As well as a, a series that I don't know if a lot of people liked, but was something that felt very like definitive of anime in 2011 for me. That's the melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya. <laughs> An anime that was very strange and um, still incredibly surreal and bizarre and uh the envelope pushing for me so those are i I can't believe i ended up ended with anime but you know what that's where we are right now that's how you're ending your decade so of course you did of course i did of course you did I'm yes. so surprised, HT. i guess we haven't talked uh, this is all tv Uh, what am i getting at or let's talk about movies let's talk about movies let's talk let's talk about movies and i realize i only have one I only have four movies on this list, but I want to talk about the four main ones that I guess uh, really defined. Oh, you know what? I'll probably, we're talking about a bunch. Um, Mad Max Fury Road is definitely a decade-defining movie. I feel like we can all agree. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of the confluence of action, uh, a feminist message, and great cinematography. Like, the movie-making of it all is perfect. Um, and it's just like, it's one of the perfect films of the, of all time. Like 
it's one of those movies where I want to show someone who who grew up in the 1910s to be like, this is what movies are going to be like in 100 years. And blow and their minds. Like, this is magic. This is magic. What is this? Um, and then uh, Into the Spider-Verse is up there in terms of that like decade-defining animation, I feel like. Um, the How to Train Your Dragon movies, I'd say, are another subset of animation. Like, perf- like, in, like animation has been great this decade, I'd say, um, with Spider-Verse being, like, my favorite animated film of the year, uh, of, of the decade, I should say. Um, it's just, I mean, we've talked about it. It's just so good. The, the, the themes, the way that it sort of looks 2D, but is definitely 3D, uh, like, I guess I'd say uh, computer-generated, um, but the way that they do, like, the Ben Day dots, like, it's so, so good. Um, uh, next is Inception, which sort of kicked off the decade. I feel like Inception really sort of, uh, you know, set the tone for, like, like with Christopher Nolan making these, like, high-budget stri- high um, action thrillers with, like, sci-fi elements to it. Um, it's sort of, you know, it is definitely, a you know, it's a Christopher Nolan movie, so that's the genre it's in, but it's also, like, not pre-existing IP. Um so and it's sort of fun, you know. Christopher Nolan's one of the only people who can who can who can do that nowadays. Um, and I think that it's just you know it gave us a lot of uh, it gave us like modern day Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I'd say, like as well as Five Hundred Days of Summer. But like he was hot there for like three years. <laughs> I remember um, when the, we were when we were in the Tumblr era, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt was like the internet's boyfriend. Oh mm-hmm. wow, we survived. Oh, many... what a time! Yeah, what a time it was. And then we get Tom Hardy out of it too, and he gets to be—he gets to be in all that. Um, yeah, Inception, like the soundtrack is is so good. Um, I still listen to that soundtrack like almost every month. At some point, I put it on. Uh, and then Captain America: Winter Soldier, I want to talk about because I feel like there's so many goddamn movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I think the, the Best, the best executed one that's definitely one of my favorites is Captain America the Winter Soldier. I feel like it definitely weirdly predicted 2017, 2016, 2017 with like, shit, there's Nazis again. Um, but also the action of it all is so good. Captain America and Bucky's relationship is well defined. The it's It just, it moves. It is well directed by the, the like it's the russo brothers best film i'd say like the end game is by its far. own beast like i don't even i don't even know how to like end game is like this three hour like monstrosity that is is very entertaining but like captain america so keeps it, like, tight as well like yeah it has it's, yeah. It's better than infinity war better than infinity yeah. war but i feel like i feel like i don't even consider infinity war end game like movies like they're just yeah, like collections of scenes I think to do Endgame is more of a movie than movie. Infinity War. Like, Endgame yes, at least has still... some sort of arc to it. Yeah, they're still <laughs> not the best for me, but I think Winter Soldier, like, mm. I feel like what we'll be saying, it it works both as a great Marvel movie, but also just as a great movie, period. Agreed. Yeah. Like, it works, like, I think it helps that, you know, they're taking, this was when Marvel was really taking inspiration from other genres and trying to incorporate that into their films. So, like, this is definitely a 70s movie, which is what brought this podcast together which is you know hollywood in the 70s so it's sort of this fun little you know thing there um chris evans i think is doing some of his best work in that movie 
Um, Scarlett Johansson's definitely, that's her best Black Widow appearance. Um, and Sebastian Stan is doing his best. Um, <laughs> he's just he doing his best. A, I mean, he's got lots to do. He doesn't have his, he doesn't have like a lot of dialogue, but he's yeah. like really, he's got a great physical, um, a, a, like, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, he has a great physical presence as Bucky. Like he's still, presence. like he brings character to Bucky just through his physicality. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's what I was trying to get at. Thank yeah. you, Anya. You're much better at speaking words than I am. Um, <laughs> Sometimes. Um, and then I guess, I guess uh, a decade-defining movie. If that's how we're doing it. Like, yeah, I don't want to dip into the same pond twice, but definitely the Avengers, Marvel's The Avengers 2012 was a decade-defining movie. I don't think that because like it, it it pulled off the magic trick of bringing the heroes together. Uh, in an in a movie, it was you know at the time the best Marvel movie. Um, even though you know looking at it back now, some of the dialogue is bad and Steve's characterization isn't great. Um, but I'd say like I think the action is still solid. Joss Whedon knows how to direct action. He, I I think that that's clear. Um, the it gave us the big one the hero shot of all the heroes on the ground and the camera runs around and like that's like you know it just it still gives me goosebumps um eight years later uh it's just it's so good um and like yeah endgame is up there as like a a, you know asterisk where it ended the decade but it's still like it had so many great moments in that as well but like i feel like the avengers because then other studios were like oh we could do this we could do the connected universes and then they don't work out like uh, you know, you see what DC tries to do. You see what the Dark Universe tried to do for a hot second there. Like this was the decade of shared universes, and DC succeeded, but only on television, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, which is where their strengths lie, and Marvel's strengths lie in their films. Um, so I, I'd say like the whole idea of a shared universe really came into fruition this decade because I'd say, and I'm gonna clarify. Thor and Captain America, the first Avenger, were both 2011 movies, even though Iron Man and the Hulk were 2008 and 2010. Um, you know, it wasn't really a shared universe until Thor shows up. Um, or I guess that one brief scene in um, the, the end of The Incredible Hulk. Uh, <laughs> but if you didn't even watch that scene, you wouldn't you wouldn't see, you know, it wouldn't be part of it. But um, Iron Man 2 definitely confirms it. And then, yeah, you, you get Thor and Captain America kicking off the decade with Agent Coulson sort of being the the in-between as well as Nick Fury. And yeah, I mean Marvel Marvel's definitely the the a decade defining thing. Um and I think the Avengers is sort of, the Avengers and Captain America the Winter Soldier are sort of two of the best films to to be that definition. Mm. Yeah, those are those are movies. I mean there's a ton of movies, there's a ton of Oscar picks that I, I'm not even focusing on uh, like her or Lincoln or um, I'm trying to think of any other movie now because I'm Check blanking. Our letterbox is um, yeah for all we've our all full lists. Best, we've, all, we've all done best of decades. Um, I've got a, like social networks up there. Um, it's just uh, parasites up there as a as a as a decade defining film for me. Uh, even though it came out this year, like I think it sets the it, it really shows you know it's the buildup of all this. Uh, um, uh, conflict of the, between the haves and the have-nots. Um, but yeah, that's that's all. Those are like the main things for me. What about you, Anya? 
Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know double a lot of what you said. A lot of movies you mentioned, I think, are you know Spider Verse is incredibly important. Um, uh, Winter Soldier is also my favorite Marvel movie, and I think you know a, a great feat in movie making and in shared universes. Um, I'm surprised you didn't say this, but I feel like the latter half of the decade was also very much defined by Star Wars. Um, and for me, as as many issues as I have with this franchise, I still think Last Jedi is one of the best films of the decade, like, bar none, both mythologically, but also just as a movie itself, um, what it represents, the risks Ryan Johnson took. Um, it was really exciting for me to see something, to, like, see something beloved, you know, uh, done in such a new, exciting way. And so I think that kind of really defined the decade for me just because it showed how you know, movies could challenge status quo and how they can, you know, do something really new with something that we think we're so familiar with. Um, and so Last Jedi for me is definitely huge. Yeah, yeah. I should say, I want to, I want to, I, I definitely didn't mention Star Wars and that's because Star Wars is so ingrained into me that I don't Fair. think about it's it. It's not just the like decade, thing, it's like, it definitely, it's your life. life. That's the, that's the thing is like, I, okay, I do want to point out that like the, the, the news event the news breaking of Star Wars is now owned by Disney. They're going to start making episode seven. When that news broke, I will never forget where I was. I was making tuna dip to eat crackers out of. And I was in the kitchen and I come in my apartment and I come back to my laptop to see like 12 notifications on Facebook of people attacking me going, has Willoughby Dobbs seen the news yet? And I'm like, what is happening? And I, you know, I, I, I see all the news stuff. I see the press release, and I'm just like, oh, this is this has changed the decade now. And I, yeah. I, I, I do feel remiss that I didn't bring up Star Wars in my in my stuff. But I feel, but you know, we all, we've we've right. talked a lot about Star Wars in the last month, and so I'm that's sort fair. of Star Wars out, to sort that's of a fair. weird that's thing fair. to say. I just, um, no, I get that. I just wanted to mention last that I specifically. I think not only just Star Wars, but just as a movie in general. Um, and so wait, it's coming back. It was a perfect was huge yeah defining moment as well i'd say yeah 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 it's it's Um, without shame for me (laughs) yeah so i'm also going to double down on like willie said about animation i think animation has had some huge feats um this decade spider-verse definitely being one of them for me also uh both zootopia and inside out um were really big for me because it showed kind of the way and and Coco even actually I would say um, Coco is a big one. Just the idea that animation can be so much more than what you think it is. It doesn't have to be like mindless children's fluff. It can tackle things like depression and mental health, or death and grieving, you know, or racial profiling, and you know, police brutality. And it's like all these things that you know, we, we think kids aren't, you know, smart enough or mature enough to be able to, you know, understand those concepts. And these movies, for me, really defied that. Um, and bridge, you know, generational gaps to show animation is for anyone, regardless of age. Um, and they can tell really beautiful stories. So, you know, those three specifically just kind of wowed me this decade, um, as well as Spider-Verse. They also just, all three of them also just made me cry so much. Well, not only Zootopia, but Inside Out and Coco. Ooh, I still sob so much watching both of those films. Oh my god, guys. The second Riley gets home after she tries to run away. Ooh, I still cry scene. during that scene. Oh my god, that scene is ten times more heartbreaking than Bing Bong. For sure. Like, 
for sure. Like, by far. Bing Bong um, I always found I mean, to be a little yeah. bit on the emotionally manipulative side, but when she comes yeah. home and you have that cathartic cry of her being like, I don't know what I'm feeling right now. I don't know whether I'm happy, I'm sad. I don't know how to struggle and feel like, deal with these emotions. I love Ooh. that. It's just so powerful. Ooh, it's so powerful. I will really say, powerful. Bing Bong is emotionally manipulative, but it, I... <laughs> The uh, manipulation works. Yeah. <laughs> the manipulation works. It worked for me. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I think animation is huge. Um, for me, some of the big, like, critically acclaimed films that have stuck with me um, a lot. Um, Her is a big one. Her is probably one of my favorite films of all time. Like, I could look at every decade of films, and Her will probably make it into my top ten because that movie just means so much to me and really blew me away. Um I think also Moonlight was a really big one for me um, in terms of representation and all of that. But I think also like it's one of the most decade defining like Hollywood moments for me too. Like when it won best picture. Yeah. I will never forget that. I remember I was working that night. Um, I was actually working for the examiner and for some reason we were covering the Oscars. I think we were like all that there that night and we were, no wait, I was, I was working USA Today. Sorry. Oof. Yeah. we were we were on a chat and we were all like what the fuck is happening and every, we were all like is yeah. this a joke and it just i remember the chat just like blowing up and we were like what is going on yeah i yeah, remember my pretty. mom i remember my mom saw la-, la la land winning and she said okay i'm done because she didn't like la la land and it was also super late and she was like i'm going to bed so she and so she like starts to get ready to go to bed when like moonlight like wins like and all that, and I, like my mom comes out to say goodnight, and I go, mom, 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 <laughs> like one, and she was like, holy crap. I remember it so vividly because I was like sitting on the couch watching the Oscars, and I remember crying when Moonlight won. Yeah, because I didn't realize like how much it meant to me to have a film like that win the top prize until it actually happened, um, and so that was huge for me. Um, again, I mean, queer representation is always something I'm going to be looking for and always going to be something I'm, that's going to be really important to me. Um, but I think this decade, especially in the latter half, had some really great queer representation for women. Um, we had Carol, we had Disobedience, we had Colette, you know, we have Portrait of a Lady on Fire at the end of this year to ring out the end of the decade. Call me by your name. Call me by your name. Not women, but like, still, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I just, I think we've had some really beautiful films about queer love that don't always have to end in tragedy or don't have to be about the tragic nature of being a queer person. Um, And so like, that's made me really happy. Um, And then, oh, uh, my one last thing is I just wanted to say what I was going, when I was making my list of like my top movies of the 2010s on Letterboxd and stuff, I, I definitely decided that 2015 was by far the best year of cinema in this decade. Um, Mad Max Fury Road, as we mentioned, decade defining. My personal favorite movie from that year, it's so hard because like Mad Max is so incredible. But Spotlight just really did something to me. Um, I think because I was so impressed in how minimal it was and yet how perfect it was. So Spotlight for me is is the my favorite movie of 2015, but Mad Max is like right there underneath it. But that year alone, we got Ex Machina, Brooklyn, Cinderella, The Lobster, Inside Out. Magic Mike XXL. We got the we got Room. We got Crimson Peak. Carol. The Hateful Eight, which is one of my favorite Tarantino films. Uh, Twenty fifteen, I have determined, was the best year for cinema mm. in this decade. That's a and lot of great movies. It's a lot I of good movies. Was, when I was looking through twenty fifteen, I was like, 
wow, I was blown away by the movies that came out that year. And obviously we've had great movies in every other year, but I think 2015 was just the most stacked and had some of the best mm-hmm. just what filmmaking the, feet. What won the Oscar in 2015? Or for the 2015 Spotlight. Oscars? It was Spotlight. Spotlight. Oh, right. Okay, so yeah. It was yeah, and Spotlight to me is like win. a perfect film. So mm-hmm. I, but... I'd say 2012 and 2017 are also really good movie years. True, because um, that 2017 was Get Out, Call Me By Your Name, mm-hmm. Coco, Thor Ragnarok. Last yeah. Jedi, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread. The Florida Project. Uh, God, Logan. Logan, too. A lot of, this, this decade has, a, has had so many good movies, guys. It's been so hard. Yeah. Just good to, decade for movies. Good decade for it, movies. It has been a good decade for movies for the decade. What are some of your standouts? All right. Well, I've been writing about the best, my favorite things of the decade for the past, I don't know, month now. And um, you can see some my uh, top 10, my personal top 10 list on SlashFilm.com. And I also contributed to the entire site's uh, top 100 list, which we, you can also find on SlashFilm.com. And I also put my Really top... good episodes of your podcast. <laughs> yes. We, all... we got really heated in our uh, debates for top movies and top TV. TV got a little bit ridiculous. I don't know if I really agree TV with our TV list. So but ridiculous. It was just because it was just so absurd. But I'm proud of our top movie list. I think it really represents us as a, uh, a website. And of, of course, my own top 10 list um, uh, were movies that we've talked about. Mad Max Fury Road, Arrival, uh, Call Me By Your Name, Get Out, The Social Network, Phantom Thread, um, Paddington 2. But I do want to highlight movies that aren't necessarily actually in my top 10, um, but movies that I had a real personal connection with. And of course, those first two are actually on my list. The first is Mad Max Fury Road. And this is a movie that really blew me away as both a technical feat and just something that that uh, portrayed this amazing feminist story about um, how women will inherit the earth, really, and how this the birth of a new world is something that can be like taken into our own hands as well as just like what how many how you can tell a story purely by a visual medium. And it just feels like the purest desolation of film, despite being so outrageous and over the top. And I just, every time I watch Mad Max Fury Road, I'm just astonished by what a miracle this movie is and how fun and entertaining and yet so moving and so layered it is as a film. And it really is just such an accomplishment. And I love it. I love it so much. Um, But my next film is the one that really touched me and and moved me to tears every time I think about it. And um, as I was writing about it, I I started to get a little bit teary. And that's Arrival. And this is Denis Villeneuve's film from 2016. And it's a movie that really touched me not just as a uh, mind-bending sci-fi film but as some about being about that um that utterly human um feeling or utterly human sort of like notion of taking life as it is or rather accepting life with all of its all of the grief and all of the joy that it comes with and that was something that so touched me and I love that this is a, a an optimistic sci-fi movie that hinges on the idea of communication and that only if humans can learn to communicate and love and live with each other can we save the world. And that was something that was just so, so, so moving to me. And I I absolutely loved how it, it 
takes away all of those notions that we have of like sci-fi and monster and alien invasions and comes down to like humanity um being both the potential monsters the potential villains but also the potential saviors of of humankind and i i absolutely love that it's just it's such a fantastic film and amy adams again gives a career best performance i'm still sad that she never won for that film it's it's a travesty so uh that is arrival and i i just I love that movie so much. Um, the next movie is one that is in my top 50 but didn't make it into my top 10 um, but really changed my life and changed how I go see movies and that's Wonder Woman. Um, it's a movie that it's not dramatic to say that it changed my life. Once I watched Wonder Woman, I, I kind of I had that sudden uh, feeling like this is a movie made for me. Finally, I can see someone like myself on screen. And I had loved and, and uh, I'd watched and loved superhero movies up until then. But Wonder Woman gave me a real feeling of empowerment that I'd never felt in a superhero movie before. And yes, its third act is messy. And yes, it's an imperfect film. But it is just so it was just so life changing for me in terms of how I was I was able to approach films and how I was able to critique films from then on. So uh, Wonder Woman definitely just a turning point in, in for me in terms of this decade. And this last one is another one that actually didn't make it into my top fifty because it's just so stacked of a decade, um, but one that uh, has a personal um, connection for me and my family specifically, and that's Coco. Um, I'm realizing I'm, I'm stretching all my sentences the same way. I'm sorry. <laughs> But Coco, uh, the Pixar film, uh, directed by, uh, ooh, I'm forgetting the director. It was Lee Unkrich. Yeah, Lee Unkrich and um, Adrian, uh, Molina. Uh, Adrian Molina. Adrian Molina, yes. This is a film that um, when I saw this, I cried, and I went to see it again with my family, and we all cried together. And I love that uh, idea, the premise that it has, which is a really high-concept premise to have for a an animated film like we were talking about before of that of holding on to the memory of our ancestors and through them through that memory they will live on and it's something that encouraged my family to uh really try to um chronicle our own family and our own ancestors past and try to keep their memory alive because of this film also we've always done it before through this um ceremony called Zol, which is a vietnamese ceremony in which we celebrate our ancestors death and um through Coco and like through the depiction of the day the dead, I was able to see sort of that same celebration, that same rite on film, and it was something that really touched me and was I was able to see a little bit of my own culture on screen and um, encouraged my family too to just like be able to keep a hold of our past and keep a hold of our, of those memories of our family. So, Coco, that's a, another film that of the decade that really struck a chord with me. Um, and of course, you can see the rest of my films on uh, on Letterboxd as well as on SlashFilm.com. But I just wanted to give a shout out to those four films of this past decade. Yay! That's so beautiful. I love movies. They're just some movies of the most great. magical pictures in the world. The motion pictures. Motion pictures. The pictures. They're good, guys. They're good. Um, the pictures. Um, Let's go so, see okay. a picture. We have talked movies and television, which are kind of like the two biggest, you know, mediums that, you know, we cover in pop culture. Um, so now we're going to go to kind of the last part of our roundtable. And we're going to each take turns just kind of talking about other pop culture uh, things or events that kind of shape the decade for us, whether it be books or music or anything else. Um, 
So Willoughby, uh, we'll go in the same order. So Willoughby, what are some other things that really kind of hit for you this decade? Yeah, I will, I'll, I'll go faster this time because I, I tend to get long-winded about my favorite stuff. Um, I want to shout out this Tron Legacy soundtrack. Uh, it definitely is another one of those, like 2010 was a banger year for movie soundtracks. You get the Inception soundtrack, you get the Tron Legacy soundtrack, you get the... Um, Social Network also that year? Like, Social Network is definitely number three. Like, it's up there. It's one of the best. Like, those, those, like, it's so good. Those, I listened to those so many times like, studying for bullshit in college that I was just, oh my gosh. Um, uh, the Hamilton soundtrack, I feel like, is a decade defining piece of work. Um, Hamilton, as in general, like, Anya, you're probably going to talk about Hamilton, so I'm not going to take up too, of your, too much of your time. But I feel like the fact that it's a sung through musical, everyone can really kind of experience the story through the audio part of it. Obviously, seeing it in visual is a whole other, another beast. But, you know, like, I loved listening to it in 2015 when, you know, when we started this podcast and talking about Hamilton and, like, gave us Len Manuel Miranda. I mean, he had done it in the Heights, but, like, really after Hamilton, he took off. Um, Lemonade, Beyonce's Lemonade, I feel like it's a decade-defining musical experience, the visual album, as well as the the songs themselves. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful album, and I loved listening to it when it came out, and I still do. Um, the return of Fallout Boy in 2013 was a decade-defining moment. They're back. Like, the Jonas Brothers, they're back. Um, the uh, I think Save Rock and Roll is a really, really good album, and I really love listening to it. Um, it was sort of like junior, like senior, junior year of college when that came out, so it was sort of like a weirdly, like an oddly impressionable time, and I would just listen to that all the time. And also Carly Rae Jepsen's Emotion. It's a great album. It's so good. So good. Um, a perfect yeah. album, and then, really. Uh, my other, my other category that I actually did lists, a, a list for is video games. Um, and I really like the Spider-Man video game that came out, uh, last year. I think it's oh God, a really, so good. Great, I want to re, I want to replay a, it so bad. It's got amazing replay value. It's a really great game of it's, you know, it's not super open world cause it's just the Island of Manhattan, but it's just open world enough for you to like, kind of like have fun, just going around stopping crimes and not really paying attention to the plot. Like it's not super plot forward, but then when it is, it's a really good plot. I really love the, the, the actual um, storyline of that game as well. Um, Pokemon go. I feel like we'd be remiss without talking about Pokemon go for that hot second in the summer of 2016, when everybody and their mother was playing Pokemon go. And we sort of stopped the, uh, doomsday clock there for a little bit. Um, we did. It's true. It was like that one little bright spot before the world was about to end really really like a fun like i mean my girlfriend and i weren't dating at the time but we weren't we were going on pokemon go dates where we would just go down the mall and see what pokemon are up there and then like two months later we started dating so like it's you know very influential um now that i have unlimited data on my phone i'm probably gonna pick it back up just because like the 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 one issue with pokemon go for me was was the data and the location like i didn't i didn't have unlimited data so like going around trying to catch Pokemon was always like very limited for me. But now that my parents switched to T-Mobile um, and we had unlimited data, I'm like, Oh, I can do Pokemon go again. I will uh, say I still play it. Um, and I still enjoy it. It's very casual for me. I never go out specifically just to do Pogo, but while I'm out, I will open it and just kind of like 
play it yeah. for a little bit. Um, I think for me, the reason I love Pogo so much is because I really love to-do lists. And so the fact that Pokemon Go has so many like tasks where it's like, do this, do this thing, do this thing, and you get a reward, I'm like, yes, thank you. I love to-do lists with reward systems. <laughs> like, I'm so into that. Like, tell me, give me tasks. Uh, so yeah, I'm I think really into that. Really loves- I really, I, th- I think you would also love another game on my list, which is Stardew Valley, which I believe you. Oh my god, my girlfriend plays this, and I. <laughs> it is such I'm so a confused kind of, by it. It's okay. Have you ever played Harvest Moon or Animal Crossing? No. Ha- okay. Have you ever played a farming simulator game? No. <laughs> so basically, what you do I've never is never been into it, that, but. It's so okay. It's super low key casual. And you also have a to-do list, and you get rewards for your to-do list. I love um, to-do lists. Like, you get, and you can, like, you start a farm. Like, you you basically move out of the city to your grandpa's inherited farm, and you, you, you know, you go into town, and you meet all the townspeople. You buy groceries, and you buy seeds, and you start planting, and you chop down trees, and you can mine diamonds and crystals in the, in the mines, but it's a 2D platformer. And and it's like super casual and like you know things happen if like you don't like you know water your crops but that's just what farming is and it's like that's, that's the conflict so, it's like I, trying I, to I keep just, your farm alive. I can't wrap my head around these games and like how oh, they keep telling like I can't I mean I I've never tried so like I, I'm speaking from mm-hmm. ignorance here but like I just I, there's a mental block in my head of being like what like I I, think... I started playing Untitled Goose Game um which <gasps> yes. It's so fun, but I feel like it has not a lot of replay value. Yeah. Like, I'm starting it's to get that impression. Like a, it's, it's a fun little, like, oh, let's turn on Goose Game and see what the what we could do with the goose. But, like, yeah, like, once you've done it, you're sort of done with it. it you're sort of done. But I was going to say, the closest I've gotten to, like, a farming game, and this is not even farming, it's just collecting ingredients in Kingdom Hearts 3 and then going to the bistro and making meals. I was like, that's the closest oh, yeah. I've gotten no, to with, doing food with, things. I kept failing at that. With the, with the ratatouille himself. Exactly. Um, so okay, but I think I think, I think he means Remy, by like, the way. His his name is Remy. I know. I mean Ratatouille. ratatouille. His name is Mr. Ratatouille. His monster is the Ratatouille's monster is is the the, the real monster. Um, <laughs> oh my god! Stop. Um, okay, no, no, but I think I think if you like, I th- I, I think Stardew Valley is available for the PlayStation Four. If you you know, if you set set aside like a couple hours on like a Saturday where you're not doing anything and you just like kind of hunker down because the game will start to explain things like as you, you know, like it, you know, it's, it, it doesn't throw you into the deep end of like, you know, the game where it really, it starts out very, you know, easy to play and then it gets more complicated as you grow your farm and you like, you know, build your chicken coop and all that, like it definitely gets more complicated, but it's really fun. And I think like you, you just expl- like when we were talking about like to-do lists, like you sort of explain like why I think you would love Stardew Valley so much. Um, I think the difference is that in Pokemon Go, my to-do list are to like battle and to like catch things and not like build a chicken coop. Like that's my mental block is I'm like, why would I find it fun to do a chicken coop in a video? Like uh, what? Because you can name them all Loki one, Loki two, Loki three, and Loki four, like I did. You can make you can name them Kendall and um, Ben. Kendall Shiv one, Kendall and two, Han and yeah, <laughs> and Han the, and, you, and like, ben There's a lot of customization. Are... There's a lot of customization with your characters. So like, I my farm is Asgard Farm, and or no Midgard Farm, and like all my like animals are named after different gods and stuff i was a real, on a real percy jackson kick when i was playing this game before um but you no know, sturdy valley is great 
Pokemon Go is amazing. Uh, I'm sad I fell off of it, but I, you know, like we talked about on our Pokemon episode, I really want to get back into it. Um, God of War, I think, was a really great uh, game, the one from 2020, 2018 that came out a couple years ago. Um, and Mario Kart 8, I think, is a really great, solid Mario Kart game for the for the Wii. Uh, no, for the Switch. I'm talking about Mario Kart. Mario Kart's so good. Um, and that's sort of it. I, I, you know, I don't play too many video games. Minecraft is definitely like a decade-defining video game uh, that I definitely played a little bit in college. But like, I definitely, I never really, I picked up again when I bought when I got my Switch a couple of years ago. But it's never really been something that I've been focused on. But I do sort of love the idea of like a sandbox you get to play in, and that's sort of why Stardew Valley works um, because there's so much you can just do like you can i spend a lot of days in sturdy valley just mining for ore and like different types of you know crystals and diamonds to like make better weapons uh, uh like to- no tools. i only play um daddy was what's, what's the daddy dating dream daddy, dream daddy. Dream daddy. i only dream, i only play dream daddy and that's it decade <laughs> dream daddy forever so with that anya what are your favorite things of the decade that aren't movies or TV. So I have two categories I'm going to talk about. Um, not video games. However, I will say they're, you know, just to, I, I do love playing video games and I, I want to play more going forward, but I will say Dream Daddy, Spider-Man, and Kingdom Hearts 3 were my three video what games. What an eclectic bunch. I know. <laughs> Doesn't really make any sense, but just go with it. But no, um, it really, I mean, it defines, it definitely is like who you are, like who you are. Like, <laughs> I know who you are. Those games definitely would be up there on that list. Like Disney, comics, gay things. Yep, basically. <laughs> Anya. Yes. That's Anya. There needs to be a video game where I get to like be someone on Broadway and I like get to like succeed or fail because then that would be like the final thing to check my box like honestly that would be a great game you create a character and you go to broadway and you like choose a a role and you have to like try and like make a career and then you it's like also a dating simulator yes i would play that game okay someone it's also like it's also like uh what's it called a rock band where you have to like perform right right someone invent this game for me because i want to play it um but speaking of theater um, the two categories I'm going to talk about uh, for this decade are theater and books. Um, and so unlike what Willoughby said, I'm actually not going to talk a lot about Hamilton because I think it's just sort of a given. You know, I think that we all true. know. It's like Star Wars. For me. Right. It's decade defining the show, um, the content that came out around it, the soundtrack. Um, I've been excited for Hamilton even before 2010 when Lynn first performed um, a version of the first song in the White House in 2009 when it was just a mixtape. So, you know, Hamilton is huge for me, um, and I think we can just all agree on that, and I've, I've seen it three times, two times, and I'm seeing it a third time in June, um, and I love it. But there were other shows that happened this decade that I think are really special. Um, I'm not going to go into all of them. I'm just going to kind of list them off. But um, So we have Come From Away, Hades Town. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Uh, Cinderella, which was special for me. It was the first time Cinderella had ever been on Broadway in 2013. Um, and I think it's a delightful little show. Fun Home. Uh, Something Rotten, which is not the best show in the world, but like, what a great romp about Shakespeare. Um, Waitress, The Prom, Ain't Too Proud. Six, The Musical. Have you guys heard of Six? I think I've talked about it, right? Actually, I don't know if you have. Oh, God, that's no. so shocking. Six is a rock 
like a pop rock musical, and the six refers to the six wives of Henry VIII. Oh, interesting. And oh, oh maybe my, you have. It's so fun, and they each like have a song about like their time being married to Henry VIII and like who they are beyond him. And it's a show that kind of like it, it's not the like most inventive or boldest show on the block, but like I appreciate the way it kind of like you know, takes a feminist twist on history. Um, and then finally for me would be Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief musical, which sort of ended the decade for me. Um, it, it recently ended its Broadway run. And I think it is just, I think it's the Percy Jackson adaptation we all wanted. And I think the soundtrack is really delightful. The cast is so fantastic. And the musical just gets why Rick Riordan is so special to people in terms of representation and the earnestness of it all. And so I think the Lightning Thief musical is really special. Um, I've listened to the soundtrack a lot in the past few weeks, and I hope I get to see it on stage one day. I hope its life continues. So I really love theater. Theater is one of my biggest loves of my entire life um, over so many other things. And I'm so happy that I, you know, I have the privilege to make it such a big part of my life that I live in a place where I can see theater um, and then I had the means to see it. And, you know, I'm not really sure what my life would be without theater because theater just means so much to me. Um, and so I really loved it. And we had some really great shows this decade, not Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> I do want to say one interesting thing about Hamilton is that it's one of the few instances in which you've seen such a huge pop culture impact that comes from, that's not from movies uh, or, or from TV. It's, it came from theater and it just sort of rippled out to impact everything else and, you know, launch Lin-Manuel Miranda to stardom in a way that we haven't seen happen before outside of movies. Like, he went on to do more movies because of the success of Hamilton and, you know, um, do the soundtrack to Moana, for example, and, um, you know, everything that he did with Disney and Mary Poppins. So it's just, like, it's such a fascinating uh, anomaly of a pop culture thing and so decade-defining and so just, like, impactful, too, in terms of its uh, tackling of, uh, diversity and immigrant culture and like think that was just like so um, you know evolu- re- revolutionary hey there hey. it is hey yes yes hey. Um, okay and then so my last one is books um, I don't have too much on this but just some books and some authors that I've loved this decade um, for me one specific book um, that was just this last year so not going back quite far but red white and royal blue i found really special um it's a queer political rom-com i don't know if you guys have heard of it um it's been pretty popular in the book world and the ya world but basically the first son of the united states falls in love with the uh prince of england well prince of wales technically um and it's it's it tackles politics in a really interesting way because the first son is Latino and his mom is actually the president, not his dad, um, like you might assume. And, you know, the the prince in uh, the UK, you know, is initially closeted and he has, you know, the idea of royalty to contend with in terms of being himself. And so it's it's both very sweet rom-com fluff, but it also deals with some really interesting identity topics that I really love. Um, and then uh, some author specifically who inspired me this decade we have Rick Riordan you know I think he has done so much for the YA sort of middle grade book world um, by having you know non-binary characters and queer characters and so many characters of color who all feel fully fleshed out and he's brought 
mythology into kids' lives in really exciting, fun ways. Um, and I think it's really special what he's done. Also for me, Nikita Gill, who is uh, a British Indian poet, and I've gotten really into poetry over the last handful of years, and her poetry is very um, fantasy, mythological-based, um, with a really, you know, blunt feminist uh, twist on it. Um, and then also Roxane Gay, her books and her essay collections have really impacted me, um, just her presence just in the world itself and um, the words that she shares with us. And then for me, I think the biggest influence this decade for me has been Neil Gaiman. Um, you know, a lot of his works, most well-known books came out well before this decade, but he published some fantasy short stories this decade, like The Sleeper and the Spindle and some short story collections like Trigger Warning. We've seen his books become adapted. I've met him this decade. I've seen him speak. I got a tattoo with a quote from him this decade. And he has shaped me so wholly this decade in terms of the way I approach storytelling and the world and myself, the way I consume narratives and, you know, the 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 gentle way with which I want to go into the world. Um, and so I think for me, Neil Gaiman is kind of like the defining factor of the decade for me. Um, both his writing, but also just as a figure in general, he has definitely shaped me the most this decade. Um, and I'm very grateful to him. And I really love Neil Gaiman and I will continue loving him for the rest of my life. So, yes, that's me. Yay. All right, uh, my turn. So let's see. A lot of things I, I've, I've had happen to me like miscellaneously uh, in the past decade. First thing I want to shout out to is actually a thing that um, it, it's my job. It's slashfilm.com. Um, and I, this is very personal. I just, uh, just want to give, I guess, a shout out to um, Slashfilm for hiring me and giving me the opportunity to like to write about movies and TV for a living and that's been just something that's been very decade defining for me um, so I just want to talk about that uh, and then also another thing is uh, it's not something that's like quite decade defining but um, I guess k-pop for me this is one the decade that I really got into it and uh, I mean like it's not per se great but a lot of the music is genuinely just so fun and uh has brought me into a community that I've really enjoyed being a part of most for the most part sometimes it gets a little bit toxic but I I've talked to I've made friends through k-pop and um strengthened friendships too with some of my old like high school friends as well as gone to k-pop concerts uh on trips to japan um and so i i k-pop for me has been like a very much big part of this decade and then another thing has been uh i guess a few video games these are just kind of like a, a mishmash of things that have been like not movies i guess because most of my focus has been on movies but um well, this is one that you guys knew was going to come, and that is Kingdom Hearts 3. There it is. Yeah. It's still my Twitter profile header. Um, I was waiting for this game for 12 years, and... It, Who are you, Serious Black? <laughs> I, yes, 12 years in Azkaban. And... Um, it kind of disappointed, but I, at the same time, it didn't just because I love this franchise so much and I have such an affection for the characters. And um, I am so happy to just like 
relive that part of my childhood in a way that hasn't been corrupted by Disney cash grab nostalgia because it's made by Square Enix and Disney just like does not care to acknowledge Kingdom Hearts at all. They're like, oh yeah, that video game franchise that for some reason sold millions of copies. I guess we should promote it. Apparently, there was an appearance of the the Kingdom Hearts version of Goofy at Disneyland. So it's going to come at some point. Well, you know, maybe we'll get a backstory to one of the characters in Fortnite. Who knows? <laughs> we don't need it because there's already plenty of backstory that's confusing enough in this franchise. But I, yeah, I love Kingdom Hearts. It had such a large part of my childhood, and I was just so happy to relive it and uh, be part of that world again, that sort of Disney slash Final Fantasy world that has become its own thing, for, truly. And um, I just love, I love anime Disney, guys. Um, another part that isn't quite can be confined or defined by one single thing I guess like Harry Potter has still been a part of this decade for me not through like the attempts to Wonder Bro- of Wonder Brothers to revive it through the Fantastic Beasts movies because those are terrible but through some weird necromancy stuff is going yeah, on over there yeah for sure but through um, the uh, theme park which I visited I think in 2011 and um, has now grown so much I want to visit again, and I, ha- I had such a fun time seeing that, um, as well as seeing the Cursed Child play on Broadway, which I was so surprised to find that I loved immensely and is much better than the, than the, uh, the book version of the play, just because it not only are the effects so impressive, but they really um, bring back that feeling of magic that... So that the movies were able to capture and that the books were able to capture and it felt like you were watching magic appear like happen on in front of you on stage and that was just so amazing to me um as well as like how brilliantly it's performed so um and you know i also got a tattoo this uh this decade of harry potter i got the deathly hallows tattoo on my wrist so it's a franchise that will always live with me it hasn't been the strongest showing for it this decade but it's shown that it can live beyond the books and even jk rowling's writings and um revisionist uh inserts that we've seen from her but uh something that will live on in in fans and in um other works hopefully um and harry uh, potter weekends were really fun they were fun and i miss them Another thing that I want to shout out is uh, is books. I haven't read as much as I'd like this this decade, but uh, because a lot of this decade was me trying to, again, figure out what I liked as a reader beyond sort of the YA um, genre that I had so often gone back to. And I still revisit every now and then, you know, with the Philip Pullman's new uh, trilogy that is a spin-off series of uh, his golden the, his dark materials the book of dust i really enjoyed that bell sauvage as well as the secret commonwealth um but i am trying to i've been trying to sort of feel out what i like as an adult reader and a lot of that has been defined by me discovering 1q84 by haruki murakami and the and the works of haruki murakami and i love that sense of magical realism and a surreal approach to his stories that make you question what is reality and what is truth. And um, in a way that is, is often disturbing, is often uplifting, 
and is always incredibly mystifying. And I know that a lot of a lot of his works are incredibly problematic, and he often goes back to the same thing of of a guy with magic dick saves magical girl. <laughs> but his books just have such a way with them and such a lyricism to them that I I have always really enjoyed them. And One Q Eight Four, I think, is the first book I read of his, and the one that really just stayed with me the most. And I I, I sped through that like two thousand book pa- um, page book in less than two weeks it was just so gripping to me because of the way that it played with um, time and alternate dimensions as well as an ongoing love story and mystery between their two protagonists so I really enjoyed 1Q84 and it also made me sort of redefine how I think of sci-fi and the limits of sci-fi too and um, what it really means to like how storytelling can be done um, but Haruki Murakami was almost the, sp- the starting off point for me to um, discover other Asian American authors or authors of color. I started to read books by Celeste Ning, uh, such as Everything uh, I Never Told You, or books by a Vietnamese American author, Viet Thanh Nguyen, um, The Sympathizer, was one of my favorite books of the past um, decade. And uh, Pachinko by Min Jin Lee was also excellent. And I also read other books by other people of color, which I can't say. I also loved Roxanne Gay, too. I read her, her memoir, Hunger. And um, I, was able, I was able to branch out a lot beyond sort of the, the literary canon, as well as, as um, try to uh, increase my knowledge of the classics as well. So that's just me trying to figure out what I like as a reader and as an adult reader. And um, I found that there's just uh, something surprising to be found in every, in every genre, in every corner of the book world. And I'm only still at the beginnings of my journey. So this past decade has been, uh, has been quite a, you know, a mix of things for me. And I'm just excited to see where it goes from here because now I feel like I've, I've formed my identity and like I've formed my tastes in pop culture. And um, I want to see where the 2020s will take us. Um, but so I think... That will wrap up our discussion about the past decade. I have one more thing. Sure, Willoughby. I want to say that a decade-defining thing has been my friendships with both of you. Oh. And that this podcast has been a very uh, decade-defining thing. And we've been doing this for almost five years now. And HT, I've known you for nearly 10, and Anya for like seven years now. Like, I just think that, you know, you both have made, made me a better man through the conversations we've had and the, the, on the podcast and just knowing just knowing you guys has made me a better person. So you guys are both very decade-defining for me. I completely agree. I, I love you guys. I love you guys, too. I feel the same way. Oh, guys. But, yes. Let's get emotional. Let's get emotional. Let's cry over the past decade and look forward to the years to come. Yes. So I think that will put a wrap to our uh, retrospective our hindsight 2020 of the past decade. Um, I think actually this this episode we're going to skip our really likes because we've already talked about everything yeah. we really liked for this past decade. We don't need to go into this week. So um, uh, uh, I think that wraps it up. Yeah. Um, but you guys should come tell us what has defined the decade for you in terms of pop culture or life events or anything like that. And where can they come chat with us, Lodi? You can find us as always. On Facebook, if you search for us there, we're also on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennial, millennial Falcon Podcast. WordPress.com. 
Um, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and what's the last one? SoundCloud, as always. And where can they find you guys on the internet? You can find me at htranbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenden on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. 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 See you in 2020.